Constance. And I'm Lucinda. And together in our Kids Love podcast, we're going to take a look at how laws affect children as we grow up. So what are we going to look at in this episode, Emma Constance? Well, I would like to know more about when children can make decisions themselves. I have heard in the news about doctors going to court to decide whether children should have treatment, and I want to know why doctors have to do this. There are different legal ages that apply to different activities because as children grow up, there comes a point at which they can make their own decisions. In terms of medical treatment, decisions are usually made by doctors, parents and children, all discussing the situation together. But in some situations, judges may need to be involved. Let's talk to Imogen Gould, Professor of Medical Law at St Anne's College, Oxford University, and she is a Gresham Visiting Professor. She is an expert in the area of how doctors and parents talk to children about illness, their rights and responsibilities, and how the courts become involved. Hello, Imogen. Thank you so much for coming on our Kids Law podcast today. We are so pleased to have you here. Please can you tell us how decisions are made about giving people medical treatment? Hello, Alma. I'm so pleased to be here. And thanks so much for bringing me on um, to chat to you about how we make decisions about children and, and medical treatment. So as a bit of a background, I'll tell you about how what we do with adults. So adults are people who are over 18. And when we give them medical treatment, and by that we mean whether we do blood tests or we give them x-rays, or we do surgery, or we give them medicine, um, in those, doctors need to get your permission first. So what we do is we ask for what we call consent. And what consent is, is when someone agrees to let you do something. And to give proper consent, you need to really be able to understand what it is someone's going to do. Um, And doctors need to tell them all about the risks and the benefits and any of the things that somebody would want to know about that procedure or also anything that that particular person would want to know. So they have to think about what people generally want to know and what this individual person wants to know. And doctors also have a, a what's called a duty of care, which means they have to do things that are good for you. Um, and if they do things that are not so good for you, um, that's not that's not okay. So the doctor has to make sure that the grown-up understands what they're telling them and can weigh up that information. And they have to check that the grown-up has given consent. And what we usually do is we assume grown-ups can make up their own minds and they understand things. Sometimes there are grown-ups who can't do that. But for the most part, we assume that grown-ups can make up their own minds and they make their own decisions about what happens to them when they need some medical treatment. Who makes the decisions about children's medical treatment? So children are a bit more complicated. So what we assume with children is that they've got parents who are usually involved. Sometimes it's somebody else, like a guardian, or who's got parental responsibility for them. And we assume that parents will know what's best for the child and will do what's best for them. So we give them what we call parental responsibility. And so they make the decisions on behalf of the child. And at the same time, doctors will be telling the parents what's good for the children. So the doctors and the parents are talking to one another, but they also should be talking to children. So there's lots of guidance that says good practice for doctors is to talk to children and get their views about things. So they respect the fact that children might have their own their own feelings. Now, we divide children under the age of 18 up into three groups. And the first is very young children, so really little babies and little children who can't really talk and they can't really make a decision or they, they couldn't really understand things very much. And very much they're the children, um, the decision is made for them by their parents, listening to the doctors who tell them what might be good for them. In the next group are older children, and they might have the ability to consent themselves. So that's what we sometimes call Gillick competent, based on a case from a long time ago about whether or not children could, could give consent. And this depends on whether they've got the emotional capacity and the intellectual ability, 
and all the circumstances and what it involves. And they might be sort of 12 or 13 or 14, 15, depending on what it is. And what they can do is they can agree to something. So there might be something where the doctor thinks this is good and the child wants it and the parents don't really agree. Well, if the child says yes and the doctor says yes, that can be enough. And that's what Gillick was about for a very particular thing about contraceptives. And the third group is 16 and 17 year olds. And what the law thinks is that as you get older and get closer to being a grown up, then you are more likely to have capacity to consent. You're more likely to be competent and to understand risks and benefits. And so with those children, they're actually presumed to be able to give consent and they're presumed to be able to understand the information and the consequences of their decisions. So we don't test to see whether they understand and whether they're competent. We just assume they are unless something suggests that they are. And they can consent to all sorts of medical procedures, even if their parents don't agree. As long as the doctor thinks it's all right, they can agree. And then the doctor can do it. Why can't doctors just make their decisions themselves? Don't they know the best medical treatment to give? Well, that's a really interesting question about what the best medical treatment is. So when someone's in an emergency and we can't ask them what we need, then the doctor's got a duty, if it's really vital, to save their life. They wouldn't necessarily wait for consent, right? Because that would be be really silly to let a child get really, really ill just because there was no one there. So then we would trust the doctor. But because our laws are all about protecting people and we don't want them to get hurt. But we can't force things onto people that they don't really want or without their consent. And so sometimes there are things that people don't want and they don't agree with the doctor. And so there are certain religious beliefs where people don't want to have the treatment the doctor wants. And people have different views about what they'd like. So there are some treatments that might make you feel really, really yuck, but they might make you end up being better. Um, And you might think, well, I don't really want to feel yuck, so I might just say no to it. So there can be kind of complicated about whether or not the doctor knows best, because we all have different views about what makes our lives good, don't we? And so sometimes what the doctor thinks and what you think or what your parents think might be different. And in the case of young children, what happens if the parents disagree with the medical treatment suggested by the doctors? So this is where it gets tricky. And there have been lots of cases about this in the news that you might have heard of. Um, cases like Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans and Tafida Rakib are really, are really famous cases about children where this was the case. Now, what we do is we let parents make decisions on behalf of the children until there is a disagreement. Now, often parents and doctors might feel a bit differently about things. And what hospitals do is they do lots of work to try to talk to their parents and explain things to them and hope that they can all come to an agreement. So hospitals do lots and lots and lots of that. And lots of these disputes never get to the courts because they fix them in the hospital and everybody works out the best approach. But sometimes they can't. And when that happens, then they will go to the court and they will ask the court what to do. And this will be where there are conflicts about things like religious beliefs. There are some religions where they don't want their children to have blood transfusions if they need blood. And so that might be one where the doctors really think the child needs blood or they might get very ill and they might die and the parents disagree. And those sorts of cases will go to the court and then the court will decide. How do the judges make their decisions? So there's a special court um, where lots of these decisions go called the Court of Protection. Sometimes they go up to other courts as well. And when that happens, there will be lawyers in the court who will be representing all of the parties. So the hospital and the doctors will have some lawyers and the parents might have some lawyers and a lawyer will be appointed for the child as well, because you want to have the child represented for their own interests. And what the courts focused on 100 percent, number one thing they're focused on is is the child's welfare. So what they need to do is work out what's best for this particular child. I mean, that's their job. And that's what the child's lawyer is there to do is represent their interests. 
And the lawyers give different arguments about what they think should happen. And they look at cases that have gone before and they say, well, it's a bit like this case, a bit like that case. And they look at the rules that are in the cases. And then they look at the legislation that might say what they've got to do. Fundamentally, what they're all doing is the court is listening to everybody's arguments and trying to work out what is in the best interest of this child, what will make their lives best and make them um, happiest and healthiest. And when they think about what's best, they don't just think about their bodies being healthy. They think about emotional health and social things and psychological things and all sorts of things. They look at um, welfare in its widest sense, what will make their lives go best. What is the situation in the case where a child or young person disagrees with parents about medical treatment plans? So where they're a very young child, it will turn on whether they've got capacity to consent, so what we call gillic competence. Now, if they're a child where they're assessed to have enough capacities, they might be intelligent enough or competent enough or have enough understanding and really understand what it is is being involved, what they can do is they can consent. Because what doctors need is for one person with the right kind of authority to give consent. And if they get that consent, they can do it. That can be parents who give that consent, but it can also be a gillic competent child can give that consent. Um, and that will be enough for the doctors to give the treatment. And that's what happened in Gillick, which was about whether or not a doctor could give some young girls access to contraceptives so they didn't get pregnant. Um, and the issue was whether or not, even though the mother didn't want them to have them, um, would it be enough if the child said that she consented to having them and the doctor thought they were good for her? And the answer was yes, that would be enough. The doctor could give them to her or certainly give her advice about having them. If it's a 16 to 18-year-old, then the courts already presume they're competent, so they can just give consent. So as long as the doctors think it's good for the child and the child agrees, that's enough. Um, and if the parent refuses to give their consent, well, that doesn't that doesn't matter. And what happens is then the child can give their consent, and that's enough. Sometimes, though, these things get kind of complicated, and it will go to the court, and then the court will have a look at what's happening. But usually if the doctor thinks it's good for the child and the child agrees, then that's what's going to happen is that the doctor will do what the child wants. The really tough ones are when the young person is not about whether they'll consent, it's whether they're refusing to consent. And there are cases like that. A lot of those are cases where the child has really strong religious beliefs. So they might be a Jehovah's Witness and they don't want to have um, blood products. They don't want to take blood into their body because they think it's wrong. And in those cases, when the child refuses treatment, what the courts might do is decide, well, it's better for the child to have the treatment and they will overrule the child's refusal. But what's really important to understand with those cases is that the courts and the doctors will do their absolute best to not do that until the last sort of possible moment. They'll only override the child's refusal when it's serious if the child's life is really going to be in danger and would be really bad for them. But they do try to respect what children think in those cases until they really don't feel they can anymore. What happens if the child or young person doesn't have parents around to help them decide or give consent? So someone might have been given parental responsibilities. That might be somebody else in their family, like their aunts or uncles or their grandparents. Or it might be that the courts or the state, so the government has appointed somebody who's going to be their guardian of some kind. Or it might be that the local authority steps in to make decisions. There's lots of rules in the law to make sure that there's somebody who's taking parental responsibility for that child. Have there been any recent interesting examples that you know about? So there have been lots of really interesting examples. and I'll give you a couple. One of those is a case about vaccination. So there's a really interesting case a while ago where some children who were about, I think they're about 15 or something, they were, they were older children, 
didn't want to have vaccinations and they partly didn't want to have them because they were vegan. The vaccinations used animal products. And so they didn't want to have the vaccinations because they didn't want to have things that animals had been used to make them put into their bodies. And one of their parents agreed with them and didn't want them to have vaccinations either. But the other parent disagreed and thought they should have the vaccination. And so that one had to go to court. And what the court did was weigh up the risks and benefits. And they tried to see what they could do to respect the children's views. But in the end, they thought that having vaccinations were really important for children to protect them from diseases that they might have got, which might have made them really ill. So in the end, they said they had to have the vaccinations. There are other cases, like there's a case that you might have heard of, um, called Bell and Tavistock, and that's about puberty blockers and hormone treatments for children who are, who are trans who want to change um, from being um, physically a boy into physically a girl. Um, and that was a really controversial case. And initially, it was all about whether or not consent could be given to this and how this was being managed. And initially, the first court was saying, well, this is such a serious decision that the court should always be involved in these decisions about children. Um, But then it went to a higher court called the Court of Appeal, and they said, no, this is the kind of decision, just like any other medical decision, that should be left to doctors and parents and children to decide, just like other things. It's not a different kind of decision. It's just like those other decisions. Can you tell us more about your work and your role? So I am Professor of Medical Law at the University of Oxford. And what that means is I teach undergraduates law and I teach postgraduates law and I teach things like medical law. I teach feminist perspectives in the law and I teach tort law, which is all about things like negligence and nuisance. Um, And I also am involved in admissions. So I am at the moment one of the admissions coordinator and I've just gone through the whole process of working out who can come and study at Oxford and helping everybody to make their decisions. And I've also got another hat that I wear. I'm what's called the access and outreach coordinator. And that job is, I think, my favourite job. And what I do in that job is I go out and I talk to people and try to encourage everybody to apply to Oxford. Even if you think it's not for you or you think you're a bit nervous, we've got a home here for everybody who wants to apply. And I'm particularly interested in children who might have had a tough time in their education um, to encourage them to come and to support them and put in place all sorts of things that we have to help those children be able to come to Oxford um, and excel and, and live up to their full potential. I have a question I ask all of our guests. What were you like at 10 and what did you imagine you would go on to be as an adult? So I think I was quite a lot like Hermione Granger when I was 10. I really, really liked reading books. I liked going to school. I liked learning things. I liked learning everything, really. And my favourite subjects were maths and French. Um, And I thought I was going to be a doctor. So that's what I wanted to do. And I did lots of sciences. I was in Australia, so we didn't do GCSEs, but I did lots and lots of science. Um, And in the end, I changed my mind right at the last minute and went to law school. Um, But I realised I really loved medicine. And so that's why for quite a long time, I've woven the law and the medical stuff together. Um, I also love baking. So that was my other favourite thing. I used to love baking when I was little. Um, And when I got older, I applied to go on a Great British Bake Off. And I actually got to meet Mary Berry and she ate my scones and she liked them. So I think I'm about as proud of that bit as I am about all my other achievements, because that was pretty amazing, really. Thank you so much, Imogen, for telling us about medical consent and your work. Do you have any advice for children who want to understand more about this area? So there are lots of great books out there that you can read. I used to love actually reading medical books and learning about anatomy and that sort of thing. It was really, really interesting to me. So I think when you're young, um, I would say learn lots about medicine, all the sorts of things that are complicated. And the 
one that my um, two little boys really like is they like Operation Ouch, which is on YouTube. They think it's really, really funny, but they learn a lot from that. And when you get a bit older, when I think you're over 14, then you could watch some court protection cases, but not until you're a bit older, because some of them might be um, a little bit grown up for you. But those, particularly if you're you know, sort of 16 and 17 and think about applying to university and so on, they might be great. And you can watch those online and see the lawyers at work, which I like doing. It's fascinating watching them watching them do their job. Well, Elmo, what do you think about what Imogen told us? Well, today we learned that doctors need to get a patient's consent for a medical procedure or treatment, and that when you are over 18, you're thought to be able to give consent, and usually doctors, parents and children are able to agree about medical treatment. In terms of children when they are very young, the parents make the decision. But if they are around 16 to 17 years old, they are presumed to have the capacity if they can understand the risks and the benefits. It is the middle group that could be more problematic and will depend on their ability to understand and their intellectual and emotional ability too. Imogen told us that most cases are resolved, but there can be difficult situations such as religious differences or if there are urgent life-threatening situations. And there, parents, doctors and the child can get separate legal advice and go to court for the judge to think about the best interests of the child, thinking about all the situation, not only medically, but emotionally and their welfare generally. In our podcast, we've been exploring how laws work and affect young people. All of these things help children understand their rights and responsibilities so that they can make informed decisions, not only about their lives, but also about voting for MPs who make the laws and understanding how the legal justice system works. It's also important that children know that they should be kept safe and that adults must care for them. Remember, if you have any worries, talk to an adult you trust and tell them how you feel. This includes your teachers at school who are there to look after you too, so tell them that you need to talk to them. You can find more information on our Kids Law Info website. Keep your questions coming in. Please subscribe, rate and share the podcast with your friends. See you soon in the next episode. Bye! Bye.